Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, which features interviews with your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days, and we'll hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features special guest Tony Decker of the Great Lakes Swimmers, a band that I will note didn't really overlap with my time playing live in the inbreds. The Great Lakes Swimmers were kind of the next generation, but we were lucky enough to play together in 2017 as part of my Sandbanks Music Festival in Prince Edward County, and you could say the two generations met on the live stage, and it was a great day. Anyway, here's the conversation. Over to you, Tony. I'm just going to jump in and start doing it and, and, and talking to all the people that I kind of know and really, it's really just having like a good conversation. And that's sort of my hope. And I thought the focus on, you know, where music starts for people is it's, I've always found that very interesting to me whenever I do, whether I'm watching a buy or reading a book, I find it very fascinating, but, um, but, you know, to start this conversation, what I thought yeah. we would do is uh, just sort of cover some of the shared history uh, that we have. And of course, uh, when I think of Tony and the Great Lakes Swimmers, I think of the fact that I started this thing Zunior, you know, probably almost 20 years ago. And I, I feel like you've been uh, part of that almost since day one in all these different ways. Um, and then very importantly, the creation of the album at the 10th anniversary. I, I'd love to know your your impressions of that record and, 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 the, and the making it and uh, what you thought of going through that process of, I think I sel- sent a selection of songs, but you really picked, I think, ultimately the, the, the songs that you wanted to cover. And it was it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, and Canadian bands and peers and colleagues and friends and and strangers and and stuff that was a little bit beyond uh, my my sort of uh, radar too. So yeah, it was all of those things, I guess, all wrapped into one. Yeah, the part of it that I really liked was the consistency of hearing you know your voice and your style, uh, you know, across all of those different um, all the different artists. And I, you know, obviously, I, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes a link to that album and just. For those that have never heard it, it's just such a unique record, and it only ever came out on Zunior. We have mm-hmm. uh, talked about maybe doing a vinyl one of these days, and maybe we will. But uh, that was that was just such a great thing. So again, I really appreciate that. So we'll start in the, the show here, or the conversation. I divide into four parts, and uh, okay. so so bef- to kick things off, I just could say, um, just tell us where where you're uh, joining from today and where you grew up. My name's Tony. I'm calling from Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, where I live. Um, and I grew up in a little town called Waynefleet, Ontario, in southern Ontario. Okay, cool. That's great. What I like to say here is that the the goal of the podcast is to really go back and feel what it was like, almost like we're in your home when you're growing up on a Friday night, and you can actually smell what was on the stove that night. So tell us what was on the stove that Friday night, and why do you remember it so well? Oh, gosh. Like, um, you mean at home, like growing up kind of thing? Yep. Yep, we're gonna go back. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah, sure. Um, like literally, what was on the stove? Like what was like what was cooking for dinner? That yeah, kind of thing? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, geez, I, I mean, I grew up with a real, um, you know, sort of a real meat and potatoes type of family um, on a small family farm in Waynefleet, Ontario. Okay, which is a small farming community in Ontario. So. Um, yeah, so, uh, geez, yeah, there would have been like, literally there would have been meat and potatoes and probably and some kind of vegetable. I've been vegetarian now for, let's see, 15 years or something. So, um, but I definitely grew up in that sort of, that was, that would have been cooking. Yeah. On the stove. 
Okay, so is that is that what your parents um, were? They actually farmers. What what did your parents do yeah. for a living? Yeah, yeah. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a farmer. Um, he did some other things too. He was really involved in the community. He was uh, he worked with the he was a trustee for a bunch of years with the school board. But but yeah, it was his main the main thing I remember growing up is working on the family farm and sort of being in tune with that, being really in tune with the outdoors. We lived in a pretty rural area. Uh, and, so there was, and what kind of farming was it uh, specifically? Yeah. I mean, like he had crops. Um, so there was a lot of kind of like really being in tune with the weather. We had some animals and stuff on the farm too, to take care of, but it was, uh, he had some land out there in Wayne fleet. So yeah, it was, uh, there was always work to do. <laughs> Put it that oh, way. I bet. I mean, I feel like I've always felt a draw myself to to uh, farming communities. Uh, I think it's because I grew up on the uh, outer edge of Oshawa, which was kind of near farms, but I wasn't on a farm. But I see, I felt like I spent all my time out in and around the areas, whether it was riding my bike or going to a uh, a creek that was near our area. And I think it's yeah. one of the things that really draw drew me uh, to the area of Prince Edward County where, you know, I spend a lot of time and, but no, I guess if you grow up on a farm, uh, do you find that you're, are you, are you still drawn to it? Or is it actually something that maybe you, you, you don't want in your adult life after that? Yeah. Well, I feel like I've, I've, I've spent the first half of my life trying to get out of the small town and now I'm sort of spending the second half sort of trying to get back in. Um, now that yeah. I have kids of my own and, uh, yes. and, uh, my wife and I decided to move from, from Toronto, just sort of about, we're about an hour away, I'd say, I'd give or take, you know, with the uh, Toronto traffic is notoriously kind of crazy, but I'm still in the city fairly regularly. But yeah, um, it, I think that was kind of part of the decision was to move back, you know, moving back to the, to the Niagara region was like a, a pretty big, it was, it almost just felt like a big sigh of relief, because it was like, there was, it, it just, everything seems to move a little bit easier and a little slower. And I, I like the pace and I like, the community and my neighbors and and i like the region um we're right on the bruce trail now but yeah, yeah that's nice. sort of finding solace in in sort of the natural in nature is that was like directly comes from that time spent in Waynefleet and spending a lot of time like alone in the woods and running a farm too you you do have to be super in tune with like the environment and the weather this systems the pattern the seasonal patterns and and stuff like that um, you're, you're sort of the survival of your crops and, and everything really relies on being constantly in tune with that. So I think, you know, later in life, I, I, I did, you know, certainly didn't realize it at the time, but I think that that was really sort of, I was really absorbing a lot of that, uh, you know, and at that time, at that time too, a career in the arts was, did not, was not on my radar at all and did not seem like that was a possibility, but later on getting into music and writing, um, I felt like that stuff started to sort of like, you know, congeal in a really sort of special way in my, in my writing and music. So yeah, that was like a, a pretty important, a, a pretty important aspect of this whole thing for sure. Was there anything about the, the farm life as it relates to a musical influence, whether, whether it was something like uh, a local church or, you know, within your home, did you have music in the house and what, and what kind of music did you have? Yeah, I mean, I didn't come from a particularly musical family, but um, but my parents were pretty active in our local church, Catholic church, and and there was a lot of singing. Um, I joined the church choir at one point, and we were all just pretty active in that sort of church community thing when I was younger. Uh, that that was maybe this maybe the the big the the very beginnings of sort of the, of music for me was was that would have been like a weekly a weekly sort of music thing experience i guess in church at that time i can definitely say for myself that um 
you know, one of the things that that really I felt a, a big connection to early on was probably a lot of radio, you know, just, just different forms of, yeah. of, you know, in Oshawa, there wasn't anything equivalent to a college radio. So it was tended to be classic rock and that kind of thing. But radio and even AM radio at that time, I think maybe had a bigger, it's the kind of thing you might hear in a car. And it's always interesting to think of how those kind of AM type melodies, whether it's pop music or all the other stuff uh, can kind of come into your, you know, I guess your musical soul uh, was what was what was on the radio when you were growing up? Or was that something that was big for you? Yeah, definitely. That's that's a good, good point that I hadn't even really thought of. But it's true. There was like my and I, and for me, it was like, you know, I, I remember that coming through on in like a truck, you know what I mean? Like like a farm yeah. truck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and driving around you know, maybe with the windows down in the summer, dusty sort of back roads, that kind of thing. Um, but there was a radio station called CHOW, which was local in Niagara. And it was like the sort of the most local sort of station you could get. It wasn't far away, but it was a very small, a small radio station. It was a, and it was, I believe they did it. They had an, it was an AM station and they played a mix of things, but mainly what they played was like sort of what I would consider like classic country and so I'm kind of dating myself a little bit, but it's going back to like, let's say like the early eighties, maybe might've been my first sort of memories of that sort of station playing in the background. Um, but it was before, before like what we know as new country sort of like reared its ugly head. Um, so there was still right. a lot of stuff yeah. like, you know, like, like Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and like just sort of classic country, you know, Waylon Jennings, that kind of thing. George Jones, maybe, you know, but the, the stuff that sticks in my head is, is, uh, is, is stuff that had uh, uh, a strong, strong melody within that genre, I guess. Okay. Um, that's, that's good context for sure. Uh, one thing that uh, similar to the question about like what's on the stove that I find interesting is, and, and I, when I think about going back to just understanding, you know, um, what it was like for you when you were really growing up and getting your first uh, inklings of music. I know for myself that when I think of my room, I think of my, I shared a room with my brother for, most I don't know, until I was a teenager, my prized possession in my room was probably this single turntable that I had bought at the um, the CNE in the summer, and it was attached to a little uh, you know a small stereo, and yeah. that allowed me to do my very first purchases, vinyl purchases. And so the thing about vinyl and I guess CD kind of around that same time was that was a chance to really you know you really took pride and ownership in what you bought. And I can remember some of the first records that I ever bought, whether it was like an REM album or a U2 album, or I always remember this, uh, I bought the Pursuit of Happiness uh, 12-inch of I'm an Adult Now. It was like a 12-inch single. And I can Amazing. remember these records that I would just, you know, this was the sort of my formative um, music where it wasn't on radio. It was stuff that I owned. Did you have an equivalent of like that in your room? Yeah, I mean, we're. it sounds like we're probably around the same age because I got my first little turntable and my first few records when I was like eight years old. Um, and I remember them very well, for sure. And shortly after that, it was cassettes that were sort of like this. So I had, yes, cassettes, know, for sure. When cassettes came in, and then shortly after that, then CDs finally started coming in. Yeah, definitely. I think I had one of the early ones I remember is Michael Jackson's Thriller. I remember getting that like pretty young and being like, yeah. having my little mind blown by the, by all, you know, the, the music itself, but also like just... You know, that's one of the beautiful things why, about vinyl and why I understand why it's become so popular again is because 
just sort of pouring over that artwork and the the inserts and the you know the gatefold and the like the lyric sheets and all of that and the artwork uh certainly that all like you know weighed pretty big like as a young kid you just it just seems like that just like a it's like a world is kind of opened up to you you know and with each record it felt like that with each new vinyl um i still have a lot of those vinyls too actually i i sort of around in my teen years i i sort of like inherited all my family's record collections when people were just trying to get rid of them because it was like right. oh you know this is like an outdated thing now and it takes up so much space and who wants these dusty old crackly records anymore when you know it was a question of like the sort of the audio fidelity has gotten so much better and blah 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 so i just sort of like you know to me it was just like these are these are worlds of music here in each one so i was like yeah i'll i'll give them to me i'll take them you know and i've i've, I've actually kept them ever since i still have them i um, think it's the same for me too actually yeah 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 and there was some some good stuff in there and then there was kind of like some stuff that like that wasn't as didn't have such a great effect on me but then there was like my uncle who had like most of the beatles catalog and you know, to get those in your early teens, I think, and to be hit with like the White Album and Sgt. Pepper's and, and Magical Mystery Tour and all that kind of stuff, I think was was like, I was like, when I look back on this, like, wow, that was exactly the right time to get that stuff. Ex- ex- the, the the way that those albums uh, helped to sort of expand music was pretty special. You think of, um, I want to, I want to uh, move shortly to the to your to your song which we're going to play and talk about but before we do in setting the stage one of the things that i'm also uh, interested in is is the stage so uh, a story from my uh, past is that like i'm a pretty introverted guy I always have been and when i think back to the stage when i was in kindergarten i can remember being called upon to play the role of a bear in a stage play <sighs> and i can remember doing it and reluctantly, I don't know who uh, put it upon me, but I did it and I can just remember finishing it. And uh, there was an opportunity to, the big surprise at the end was you could get uh, some, uh, essentially like a, some orange drink that they had at like a little, maybe a <laughs> snack bar. And I was so, I was so shy. I could, I really wanted the orange drink, but I could not get, I could not bring myself to get it. And I remember going home after, after playing this bear. And I, I don't think I said to myself, I'm never going to be on the stage again, but I ne- definitely did not have a draw to the stage. And I never did uh, anything like acting or anything like that in, in, in high school or public school. And years later, I found myself playing in a band. Was there any formative stage experience that you had at those, those, in those early years? Oh man, it's really hard to, st- it's really hard to say, but yeah, that sounds like, it sounds like kind of like a Wes Anderson moment that you had there. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, he always has these like little plays within the within the yeah anyway i don't know i I mean i probably had similar experiences to that um i feel like you know when i think about being uh up on a a stage of sorts in front of people like yeah like being in the church choir was a little bit like like being part of a performance i guess uh when i sort of like really look back on it it's like oh yeah maybe that sort of like you know set the stage a little bit so to speak um at the time really early on like as a kid you know like in when I got into high school and got into just really learning an instrument by ear and all of that, like then putting together a little high school band in like grade nine and 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 playing little shows, that felt like more of like the real sort of thing. But but early on, you know, there was when I think about yeah, just being in front of people, singing, being on stage in front of people, that might be it, you know. Okay, high school bands. That's a very good segue to the second part of this conversation. We're going to play a song uh, that uh, you provided here, and this is Lock 8 with Rocking Chair. 
Okay, so that was the song "Rocking Chair" by Lock Eight, and uh, Tony's gonna, you know, tell us a bit of uh, tell us a bit of the story behind that song. You you noted that you were 16 years old when you recorded that uh, in 1992, 93, and one of the first things that comes to my mind is you mentioned that was recorded on a on a four track, which at the time was revolutionary gear, and that's pretty much at the exact same time as I started using four tracks with the inbreds. Because everything prior was really, you just, you could go on a cassette, you know, on a stereo, which is what we would do. But tell me about the recording of that song and working with a four track, maybe for the first time. Yeah, um, it's sort of, it, it really, yeah, it brings, kind of brings me back to the, to those early years in, in high school. when We put together a little band. And so, yeah, um, our, I, I worked with, uh, I worked, we, I formed a, a, a fun little high school band with a, with a, with a close friend of mine named Matt Sorge. Um and he played drums and he came from like a, a pretty particularly musical family. Um, he had five brothers and they all played music and they had kind of like a family band kind of thing and, and really a, a quite a talented group of people. So, and they had sort of like made like a sound room in their basement for them to practice and play. So, so we, we sort of had that, um, his older brothers, they all made, you know, not necessarily a studio, but like kind of soundproof the basement, a room in the basement to sort of jam in. So, yeah, yeah, and because he was the drummer, we always, we always, you know, jam practiced, rehearsed, or, you know, made noise basically at his, at his place. And yeah, I'm not sure who the four track belongs to. I, I had one at one point I had, it, it was like a Fostex, one of the Fostex series, the cassette tape recorders, Yes, yeah, um, which I loved, you know, and then you could, you know, you had four tracks or you could sort of like, you know, you could dump three tracks onto one track and then you have, you know two more tracks to play to, uh, yeah, to record for, for those that are, that are, you know, only used to computer recording. Uh, it's hard to, you know, uh, sort of emphasize how, how, what a revolution it was to have something that you could just buy a $3 cassette, put it in this yeah. machine and be able to split four tracks. And the fidelity of course was, was what it was, but the, the ability to creatively divide up the, um, the, you know where you could do you could, you literally could do drums separately or particularly when it comes to doing harmony vocals or doing all the sort of like the bed tracks and being able to do vocals later it's almost hard to understand now where you can do unlimited computer tracks and it's all digital uh yeah. it's just such a revolutionary thing to have four tracks but i, I get the sense that, like i said i think we probably hit on it about the exact same time of our life i used that machine absolutely and i used that machine like well into the 2000s and i think i still have it somewhere um with all my old tapes and everything on there um, but yeah, like what a, what a thing that was to, to be able to do that, to like split tracks, right. Cause on a cassette tape, you get two sides, um, stereo, you know, two stereo sides. So that's four tracks all together. And it just records on side A and side B at the same time. So what, yeah, what a revolutionary thing that was for, for a, for a young teenager to discover that you, to discover multi-tracking. Yeah. Now, one element of the actual song itself, uh, that, that I find very interesting is of course you can definitely see the the um i had it going through i just went for a bike ride and it was going through my head as i was riding uh it's got like the it's got all of the shape early shape of i think elements of your vocals it's interesting that you've got that kind of where it goes from the loud to the to, you know it goes to that kind of um heavier part and oh my gosh and, yeah and to I, me that's I, it just takes <laughs> me back to that time as well right absolutely i was absolutely when i listened to it again as well like there were a couple different tracks that i had to choose from and my my friend matt sorge had gone through the trouble of digitizing them a, a bunch of years ago so i just i sort of had the track sitting around but i was like which one kind of speaks to you know 
which one kind of speaks to the future a little the most out of all of them and and this was kind of one of the more quiet tunes on it which kind of maybe relates a little bit more to the to my work today but 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 that but every single one had like quiet verse heavy chorus it was like when the chorus comes in you hit the distortion pedal (laughs) and it's like the quiet loud quiet loud thing was like that that was that uh, (laughs) that was totally real in the 90s that was just the way we i I mean literally every track has that uh, yeah and it's something that always worked so it works so well live you know anything that's quiet loud (laughs) it's an it's kind of a no-brainer if you're playing that in front of people but uh, another question I have about the the track because I can think of some of the first times that we recorded or uh, different things. Who and when would you play that actual song for back then? Like who who heard it first? Do you mean like like performing it live or or the or no? The like tape? You, you know you you go to all this effort to record something like that and then you're like, are you going to play it for your parents? Are you going to play it for your friends? Do you just sort of put it on the shelf and never play it for anyone? I'm always interested in that. It's like the those those early early attempts because it's it can be you know whether it's being shy about vocals or you know who who heard that song do you think that actual yeah. recording i should say yeah i mean well i i years ago I, I found a box of old cassettes and it reminded me of like the there were in the early 90s in like st Catharines, which was kind of like the nearest sort of city um to us there was like i guess maybe it was about 40 minutes from from where we were in waynefleet but um, when I got older in high school, there was like just this little scene and it was just made up of like everyone that was kind of starting their little bands. And so almost every weekend there would be, you would either be going to a show to see one of your friend's bands or going to play with your band in a little place. And the audience was basically made up of, you know, other people in bands or your friends. Other or, bands, you yeah. Know. Yeah. I, I, um, so there was this exciting little thing in the early nineties in St. Catharines where, yeah, bands would just play at little places, little, you know, af- after a restaurant was closed, they'd convince the owners to let them set up and play music in there. Or um, there was a used clothing store in St. Catharines called Out of the Past that actually I think it's still there, where they used to clear the racks of clothing and push them against the walls and kind of set up a little stage at the back or set up on the floor yes. and just have these little Very all nice. ages shows. Uh, yeah, and just have these little all ages shows. We were all 16, 17 years old and, and, and all kind of like trying out our little bands. But like one of the things that we did with that music was, and being cassettes, it was super easy to just like duplicate the cassettes, right? You could get like, um, duplicate, duplicate like cassettes for pretty cheap where you buy yes. a box of cassettes and you sort of run them off as needed and you photocopy the cover and you put your little sort of, uh, you, you know, your credits and your notes in the thing and it was all, it was all very exciting, but like, I have like a box of tapes of, of stuff like this from like my friends bands and, and, and stuff that was sort of released at the time. And ours would have been like in that pile, you know, um, where it would be like, you, you, you sell your cassette at the show or you, or you trade them or you give them away. You know, a lot of them, we just, just gave away We like we duplicate them. And, um, and, uh, so there was, yeah, it was like this little sort of tape exchange with like other local little local bands of the time. That's, I think that's who would have heard it, you know? And and family and stuff were interested in stuff too, but it was like it was more exciting to just be part of a little a little sort of scene and and, and uh, yeah, just kind of be basically making music for your friends. You know, we played it we played in, on a like a skateboard half pipe at one point in someone's barn and oh yeah, cool, like, <laughs> all kinds <laughs> of stuff, backyard sort of things um, where you know people set up a little stage. I feel like when we did when we did our very first uh, four track recording, uh, it almost immediately went this was when we were in Kingston, the inbreds and you know, it, 
almost went immediately to CFRC, the local, uh, the college station, university station, which was okay. such yeah. a great thing to be able to have. And it, you know, it, it charted, right. And all that kind of stuff. And we were able to get shows because of it. It just opened up so many yeah. things. Was there any equivalent of like a college station that you, you might've been able to, uh, get some of your earlier, maybe not this recording, but some of your earlier recordings too? Not really. No. I mean, later, later on, when, when I started doing the Great Lakes Swimmers thing, um, campus radio was huge for that, um, especially Canadian campus radio, um, which I discovered when I, I, um, went away to university in, at Western in London, Ontario. Um, so that was, I, I, I worked at campus radio for, I don't know, four years or something when I was going to school and, uh, and sort of realized just what a sort of incredible sort of network that was, especially back then. I mean, when it was, we were still talking about like still playing cassettes and vinyl on the air. And in some ways it still is, but, it, but at that time it was really dealing with like, like I was part of the group that would go through, uh, they would do it once a week where they would gather all, all of the, the music that they received and, and listen through it. Like I, I, the, the campus radio in London was CHRW. It was 94, yep. seven at the time, 94, nine now. Uh, yeah. And, and um, was like, you know, had the the sort of the the bragging rights of being the only, maybe the only one that was 24 hour. It was staffed for 24 hours with original programming wow. in Canada. Yeah. So there was they like every night had a graveyard shift, had a live DJ. Um, I started out doing that, um, and eventually, you know, started getting. Uh, by the end of it, I was on the afternoon doing like the countdown or whatever, you know, in the afternoon uh, drive uh, once or twice a week. So, I feel I feel like we should have a tape of that. That'd be pretty good to hear. What's that? <laughs> to hear you doing that show right now. That'd be awesome. Oh yeah. You know what I did? I, t- I have a, I have one tape somewhere of like, and that was, was recorded by a friend of mine who I just said, Hey, come on, let's do a, let's do a radio show. We came on and did it and he taped it, but it's somewhere. <laughs> it would be, I don't know. It's, it's in a box somewhere. I'm sure. That box um, of tapes. Yeah. Um, it's in that box of tapes, that box of cassette tapes. Yeah. Okay. Well this, this, so this, uh, this concept of, you know, um, college radio and, and, and sort of going to the next level is a good segue to let's go to the, I'm going to call the third part of the uh, conversation here, which is, uh, I call it music becoming real. So, uh, the first question here is now you're, you've, you know, you've done the high school bands, you're moved to Toronto. Uh, you're starting to get into, you know, the, the earliest days of what would become great Lake swimmers. Uh, as you start again, doing releases, playing some shows, what was the point where you could tell where music was becoming a real thing? Meaning you, you, you used to go, this, this is, this is real now for me. And I can, I feel like this is something that's going to go to what it became. I guess it kind of starts in, in like in, in London, Ontario, when I was going to Western and I had kind of started writing songs there in a more, a more serious kind of way, I guess. Uh, but it wasn't really until I moved to Toronto um, that I started just playing. I mean, I think I played every little club in Toronto the first couple of years that I moved there. Uh, around 2000, 2001, um, 2002, kind of in that zone. Um, I came out of school with a, a pretty enormous uh, student debt, so I needed to kind of like get a job right, right away. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so I worked for a film company for about three years uh, during that time in, in, in Toronto, while sort of like just sort of writing songs and playing out in little places, you know, like graffitis. And there was the the Cafe May, which is now the local in Roncesvalles in Toronto and Free Times and a bunch of little places on College Street. Let's see, uh, Jason Collette's series was going at that time. I went to check out that a bunch at the uh, yes. at Ted's, Wrecking, Ted's Wrecking Yard uh, and later Ted's Ted's Garage, I guess is what they called it. And uh, 
there was, I mean, it was really good timing, I think, because Toronto in the early 2000s was just starting to really be noticed as a, as a music place and uh, broken social scene had just started and the arcade fire had just released their first little EP and we're playing at sneaky D's and the wavelength music series was happening once, once a week there. But um, yeah, like all through all throughout that time, I think from about maybe 2001 in the summertime and then, or maybe even earlier than that, I'd kind of started making these tracks um, with a friend uh, down in Waynefleet, um, actually close to my parents' place, because I knew about this old sort of abandoned silo on this old abandoned yes. farm out in yes. the nowhere. And we spent about two years just like making tracks out there and and at a certain point had to decide whether we were going to like, like we literally had to bring in like a power generator and, and do all this stuff to, there was no power out there. It was just literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so we spent about two years kind of tracking songs. And at a, at a certain point, we had to just decide whether we were going to keep all of that ambient sort of like environmental sound that was coming through. Because uh, the idea was really just to get like some like a cool field recording, like a cool location recording with some nice, big, you know, unusual reverb on it. Um, and so we went to this silo, this old grain silo, a concrete silo it was about 50 feet tall or something. And mic'd it all up and just I went in there with an acoustic guitar and just recorded um, and had a few uh, a few friends do a few overdubs later in Toronto. But for the most part, it was all done in, inside that space. And, um, and at the same time, was just kind of playing around, playing, taking every, you know, opportunity to just play every little hole in the wall in Toronto that I could. So and just by doing that, I feel like I crossed paths with a lot of a lot of like minded people. And it was just a really exciting time. Um, to be in the city, you could still, you could still live there affordably. Um, yeah. That has like changed. A, that's for sure. Yeah, In like a basement apartment. So yeah. And, and just, you know, played in a few different configurations of bands and, and, and was working full time, but like still, still doing music um, without any real design of having any sort of career or anything. It was, I mean, it was just purely for fun. I mean, it still is purely for fun. It has to be, but, but, but yeah, at that time it was just, um, I, I, at that point, I still didn't sort of consider it a career. At one point though, I took the leap within about like from my job and tried, decided to kind of focus on music a little bit because the first album had just come out and we were starting to get a little bit busier with, you know, being invited to open different shows. And, and it seemed like the, the, the first album that first Great Lakes Rimmers album really resonated with people. So within about six months of sort of taking that leap, I I got invited to play in Europe. Uh, a, a record label was, you know, contacted me and said, have you ever thought about releasing your music in, in Europe? You know, which I, I took about three seconds to think about that one. You know? <laughs> um, and the same thing in the U.S. There was a label, that, a small label from, from Austin, Texas, that took us on uh, to release our first couple albums down there. So we all of a sudden got really busy, but it still felt like we were just, you know, we were sleeping on floors. It was still pretty, didn't have like a booking agent. The first CD didn't even have a barcode on it. Like it was, it was meant to sort of be an art project. We um, connected with a, a, a couple of people um, that started an art salon called WeWork in Toronto. Um, yes, Phil. Yeah, Phil. And, and so Phil also worked for Canadian Music Week and he came across a, a cassette that I had sent in for to try to get. I thought like, oh, let's see if we can get a show at Canadian Music Week in Toronto and and sent in a cassette and and it crossed Phil's desk and he really liked it and and uh, said, why don't you come down and play it at our, our art salon? 
and we uh and we and i did as just a solo great lake swimmers was sort of a more or less a solo concern at that point like a, a sort of a songwriting vehicle that i i thought it was a great band name but i didn't have a band it was a songwriting kind of thing yeah and then they kind of offered to help help me out by just releasing the album through their art salon and it, it was all like handmade packaging at first and we did we made a we pressed like 500 copies and i thought I would be lucky if my friends and family, you know, were able to buy through, you know, if I could sell half of them, I could make my money back on the pressing, you know? And uh, so, yeah, but then it, it, like the first pressing went through in a couple months and we had, you know, a couple more, we had made another pressing and that sort of sold through with all of our handmade packaging. And then it just sort of became this thing where it's like, wow, I guess we work as kind of a record label now because it's sort of acting as one We're, we're pressing these albums. And so even at that time, it kind of felt like there was a spark there. But but again, like driving out to Montreal to play a show, um, going on the road with the Two Minute Miracles and, and having those guys yes. take, take me under their wing for my first Canadian tours uh, out to the East Coast in the fall and then out to the West Coast in the spring. And uh, Phil was still somewhat active with his old label, uh, Teenage USA at that time, who had released records by the Two Minute Miracles. And and they put us on the road together and uh, I became a real friend with Andy from Two Minute Miracles. And he recorded all of our albums up until uh, I think he's been involved in some way or another with all of our records at this point, whether it's just doing a few overdubs at a studio or, or just even just giving it a listen and, and letting me know what he thinks. But we, we became really good friends and, even at that time, it was still, you know, we were touring across Canada, sleeping on floors, camping at some points, sleeping in the van, doing 24-hour yeah. drives to get back home, um, doing all that crazy stuff, you know, that that you sort of like, it's just so much fun. You don't even, it doesn't feel like it's a hardship, really, you know? Yeah, and, I, I think that the, you know, the, those, the, the early days, uh, I, I can definitely say for myself, one of the elements of music becoming real was that point that you actually can quit your day job. You know, yeah. we have a very similar experience where, you know, we, we did releases, we we would tour and we would take the money from the shows and the releases would all go into sort of like a, almost like a single account. And then we would use that to record more stuff, but we still all had jobs or the two of us had jobs. And then, then there was that point where we were actually able to quit and do music, you know, yeah. like we did music full time, but I would say that in my case, the, this sort of more amorphous definition of music becoming a real thing was, was probably earlier on. and. and at times, like you mentioned a bunch of different points that I would say would be, uh, in my mind, whether it's the first release that you actually, you know, you press 500 copies, like that is real. And that's, that's yeah. a, a really big thing, you know, and touring, as you said, is, is just, it, it, there is no hardship. It's just, it's really, uh, every new thing is a, is a new adventure, you know? Yeah, exactly how it felt to me too. It was like, it just felt like a, a really kind of great adventure, um, and so, yeah, that was, there was definitely that moment for sure. I mean, there was a, there was some very lean years after that. While I felt like, even though, you know, I, 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 at one point I felt like, even though I was like, I had been touring in Europe and, and had a label there and been, we had gone down to South by Southwest. Um, but we were still sort of sleeping on floors and still touring in a car, you know, more or less. And, and like with like one of those store, you know, those like storage compartments you can get on the top, like uh, yeah. kind of yeah. tie them to the top of the car. You know, we had right. one of those. 
yeah. for the drum set. Um, and basically sat like with gear in between us and on our laps and everything as we were driving. What, um, what was the point actually that you went from specifically being, uh, being able to tour solo and touring with, with, you know, I know you've had different versions of bands over the year, but when was the first time you actually had a, uh, were able to go out with a band on, on a tour, not just a single show? I think it was probably those, it would have been around 2005, like sometime on the second album when I started to try to piece together a band, but the band in quotation marks is, is kind of been a bit of a revolving cast. It's it, even at the beginning, it was like whoever is available and can do it and is, you know, up for the adventure and, and for being on the road um, was kind of the, the, that constituted the band on any kind of given uh, record or even on any given for sure, tour. Yeah. Um, so it was always a bit of a revolving cast where it was, I felt like it was a songwriting vehicle and then different friends would make up the backing band depending on where we were going and who was available. But yeah, it would have been around that time where we we did like a, a, a sort of a loop in the US to get to South by Southwest and back, which was a really sort of important one for us because it was where we first connected with a, a little label down there and did a showcase and then played with some of the other bands that were on that label. And at the time, who would have been like um, Phosphorescent and Shearwater and um, Centromatic, led by the brilliant songwriter Will Johnson from from Austin, Texas. And that was the first time with the with a full band i feel like on the road was around that time and it's not something i would have done just sort of like you know uh without having that sort of support there but it, it was sort of like that door sort of opened at the right time for us and we were just able to do it still i still remember doing those tours and coming home and being in a basement apartment in toronto with like super cheap rent and then going <laughs> yeah. into kensington market and buying like the day old bread because it was like it was half price and um, you know, and, and really sort of living pretty lean <laughs> for those first couple of years of doing it. Uh, things sort of really s- fell into place. I feel like when we signed with network um, for the third album, then we started traveling in Canada and elsewhere, Europe and the States a little bit more, but, but then we started selling out shows um, and it felt like we were still just like, I would like finish the set and then like run to the back of the room and get behind the merch table, you know, to like sell records. Yeah. yeah I did that too. Yeah. So it, it still felt like, but at that point it was kind of like, okay, maybe we can afford to like have a little bit more of a, a crew now. Maybe we don't, you know, the four of us don't have to share one hotel room or sleep on a floor, you know, at a friend's place in Ottawa or wherever it was. So, so it, at that point it started to feel like things were that that's when it kind of felt like, okay, maybe this is something that is, is feasible to do as a career. Again, going back to like being raised on a farm and having like no, like being a career in the arts was not even, it didn't even seem like a possibility. So for it to suddenly feel like, wow, there's, we sold out, you know, wherever it was, Barrymore's in Ottawa. This feels like, you know, this, this could really, you know, maybe we're onto something here. About, uh, about recording. Um, you mentioned network, you know, and um, w- one thing is the, the, that, that idea that, and maybe in, in today's sort of model there definitely are bands that can record entire records on their computer, commercially release them, uh, and where maybe they they've got good mics, whatever they can do everything themselves. But uh, I always found it a real luxury the first time we got a chance to actually be in a studio and have someone on the other side uh, on the board, and there's the glass that you're looking between, and you're doing multiple tracks, and there's maybe a producer, maybe not a producer. But that is such a luxury that at the time I remember thinking this this is feels amazing, and and I. You know, maybe today there's not as much of that that even like a lot of maybe younger bands get a chance to do. Do you remember that first time that you had a, a what I would call a bigger uh, recording experience? Yeah, well, I mean, we worked with Andy all the way up until 
like I think 2012, like for the next, you know, whatever it was, uh, eight years or something like that, we recorded three, four, five, I don't know, four albums with Andy after that, um, with Andy McGoffin. And so, but they were all like, I was really, um, adamant about doing location recordings and, um, Andy was up for some of that, but, you know, as you probably know, like there's not a lot of engineers that are really willing to tear apart their home studio or their yep. studio setup to kind yep. of haul all of that gear to a space and then sort of reset up and then deal with all of the sort of the nuances of recording in a place, um, which can be a little bit tricky. But what, what I find about is that I find it incredibly exciting and, and interesting and sonically unique to kind of do something like that and, and just to see what you get from a space. So, that's that was always something that fascinated me um, to no end in terms of audio recording. And um, Andy was pretty good about doing those first recordings with us on in locations like in churches and um, different kinds of halls and things. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's um, always been a huge part of your story for me is all the all the interesting places that you've recorded and in the way that as a listener, you, you, you really do see it reflected across all the records. Um, and sometimes even in the titles of the records, uh, including, you know, I love, I love the fact that you were able to record out on Toronto Island, yeah. uh, right. Uh, and, and that you named the album after the, uh, the ferry that, that goes out. I was lucky enough to record a, sort of a solo record on my own, a thing called Egger. And oh, I remember when, yeah. when yours came out, I just thought, I just, the whole experience of being able to, again, just another unique location, but you've, you've had so many, so many great ones over the years. It's love it i loved yeah i loved being out there too on the island like right with the the you know you look out the window and then there's lake ontario you know and you're sort of like looking south uh into lake ontario which was pretty nice and and uh, uh yeah and it was a great experience recording with dale absolutely for sure um we ultimately you know took those initial tracks and 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 moved everything to the aeolian hall in london which is a little closer to andy's uh, neck of the woods yeah. at the time yeah uh, house of miracles where where the house of miracles was based at the time um, and, uh, yeah, that's definitely been a huge part of it, but I know what you mean. It's kind of like, to me, that's almost like the most exciting part of it is like having the songs really come alive and like, you're creating a document and you're, you know, you're in a space and you're in a certain time and you're in the moment, um, and you're in a particular space and you're making a document of something. And, and it's ideally it's, you, you, you know, you're telling these, these stories of your, your experience and, and, and maybe trying to tell a little bit of the story about where you're from and, the sort of like the, uh, the, 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 the inner and, and outer landscapes that you sort of find yourself in and, and sort of helping to add to that sort of, that, that sort of great compendium of, of stories that we tell each other. And to me, that's always been the, the really exciting part for sure. And having, having that done in, on location just made for me, the, made that experience for me, like even more profound, you know, recording in a, in a very specialized space that has a particular kind of energy or, or a particular historical aspect to it really adds to the whole um, experience and adds to the music for me. It's part of the reason actually that I'm drawn to doing this specific podcast is I love, I love that you're able to look back on your own stories and your records, but there's also things that are outside of those. And it's great to be able to capture them, you know, via, to me, a pod, what I like about podcasting is that it is sort of a, uh, it's a great equalizer. It's something that really it reminds me of a lot of like indie rock punk rock ethic in the sense that uh you know anyone anyone can do it and yeah you know and and it's very uh, accessible and so i love the chance to get these stories together so it's again it almost reminds me of of music in in that way we're going to go to the last section of the podcast and we're going to okay. there's all kinds of great things that you did for many years and you're still doing but we're going to go to what i call flash forward 
Okay. So now we're back to, now we're kind of right up to today. And again, you've done all this great stuff over the years and you're still doing it, but what, what are some, uh, what are some family life updates of, of your world today, as opposed to the, you know, way back when we were uh, back at the farm? Uh, well, I mean, we don't really need to get into like talking about the pandemic, but like, um, yeah. you know, we were as a band, we were right at the end of a sort of an album cycle, right. As the pandemic hit. So we were, we were lucky in one sense, but in another sense, like I had, you know, studio time booked for, well, studio time, we had a location recording set up in St. Catharines for March, 2020, um, at the end of March and, wow. um, ostensibly to start tracks for the new album. Um, and all of that got obviously put on hold. Um, we were finally able to get in our first session in September, 2020. Um, but it was sort of like, uh, everything just felt like destabilized in a, in a, in a way in, in the music industry and in, in the arts and, and not even in music, but I mean, everywhere, you know, it felt like that for, you know, particularly in the arts and particularly in music where you, where it relies on, um, people gathering in places. And that was just, um, you know, that was gone liter- literally against the law to do that. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we tried to sort of in between waves when it was, it seemed like it was safe enough to do it. We, we would do these recording sessions over the end of 2020 into 2021, we got some work done in the summer of 2021 and then a little bit in the spring of <laughs> the following spring of 2022. And in the summertime, we kind of finished it up. And like, we have these, I have these photos from like some of our sessions where the band is all wearing masks and standing on opposite sides of this, oh, of, yeah. of the room in these, in this big church. And, and so, yeah, it was just a really bizarre experience. Um, for everyone, not just us, um, but for everyone, especially in music, I feel like, and um, people in the front lines, you know, I, I, I really feel for, for the people that were sort of taking care of all of uh, taking care of all of us during all of this, for sure. Um, people selling us groceries and working in the hospitals and, and, and doing all of that. But yeah. So at some point um, I moved away from Toronto and moved down to the Niagara region. Uh, we weathered the pandemic here. And kind of came up with this album over the last like three years or so, I guess, two or three years. Um, and it's finally going to be released this spring. Yeah, I, I um, think I mentioned, yeah, um, just in, as far as family life, I, um, we have two kids now. And so we're, this seems like the right place for us to be at the moment. We were, we moved into like a, a very old, uh, house in, in uh, the outskirts of Niagara on the lake and are, are sort of working on sort of bringing it back to life and um did a little bit of that over the pandemic as well and yeah and and now have a new record that um and and a a new label and and uh sort of some new people that we're working with um to help us bring this one out yeah and and i'm super excited about it i i I can't i can't think of another time i've spent this long on an album other than like our first record which just took years and years to just do properly but this was for different reasons but it it was it was a little frustrating in some ways because it was just like how long can you possibly spend? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the silver lining is that I think that it turned out really good and we had more time to kind of consider it, you know, to consider things, to consider the songs and the, the way, the way they were recorded and mixed and everything. I worked with a really great producer, co-producer in, in the Niagara region named Joe Lipinski. Oh, um, yeah. I know Joe. I know Joe. Yeah. Joe's uh, just such a fantastic uh, human and uh, awesome person to work with. And, and, uh, we we spent a lot of time we felt like we climbed a mountain together working on this record for sure 
so it was it was it was a long long process um yeah you can really feel the weight uh, of uh almost in your voice of of the effort and everything of the I, i feel like one of the things about the pandemic is that it's the 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 after effects the aftershocks are still happening in a whole bunch of different ways in in my life i think in everyone's life it's it's uh totally it was a really i it'll probably like like anything it'll probably take years to really figure out what happened and what is currently happening you know, with all of our minds basically but totally uh, i can see as as going through that with the recording process oh wow you know um i'm so happy that you are that you've, you're going to be able to see the end. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, uh, it's going to be great. It's been a while. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been, I feel like I've been following sure. your, your career since the the very, very earliest days, uh, you know, back when there was, you know, chart magazine and that kind of thing. And yeah, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. it was always, uh, you know, like I said, the way that you, the way it connected with, as you said, the rise of the Toronto scene in the early 2000s which was pretty much when i started junior and i felt through that i was connected in different ways to a lot of the bands and uh it's Absolutely. just been great like you know as as you sort of look back would you say again because there's still uh, you, you know uh, you have a lot more to come obviously but is is there a certain highlight uh, to this point uh that's something that really stands out as something that was just like one of the coolest things that you've, you've done over the past you know whatever 20 years yeah i don't know it's hard to say there's there there's so many great um moments for sure i think playing massey hall like being able to headline massey hall at one point yes yes was, was that was a big one um because as a you know as a as a as a canadian musician but especially as a toronto musician it's kind of like to me that was kind of like the that was that that's the venue you want to play at and and that that was that was like i was so nervous going into that but when we finally got there and we're setting up to play it just it, it honestly to me felt like it was like a warm bath you know like it just it just felt like this is it just felt so great to be able to fill that space with their that historic space with their with our music and and to be able to play there and to, to have a nice full house for it and you know it was just such a great it was that was a great moment for sure that's yeah. that's uh that's amazing I, I believe uh was that the one that was filmed that i've seen on youtube yeah it's out there yeah it is yeah i've I've watched that it was really great uh they recorded it and filmed it for the live at massey hall yes yes that's right okay so so this this we're coming near the end of the uh, kind of the journey here but uh one of the questions a version of a question i want to ask just as you you think when you think back to you know where you started what if you had some advice to yourself that if you were to go back then about the idea of trying to make it in music either a tip or even just a comment, what would, what, what do you think you would say after having done everything you've done till now, what would you say to yourself if you could go back and talk to the 16 year old Tony Decker? Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what advice I, I'd have. Cause I feel like, you know, it was like, it was a really fun, it's just been a really fun journey. And, and that, and I think I always kind of felt this though, is that like the music itself is its own reward, you know, and, and you, you do it for that. You don't do it for, I, I find that there are, there's a way to have a music career where it's all very calculated and hands are being held every step of the way. And you're, you know, you're being introduced to people and you're, you're being positioned. And I'd never had any of that. Um, and I'm thankful for that because it made it so much more fun um, than if I was kind of worried about like impressing the right people or, or sort of like doing the right um, thing or compromising my music in some way to sort of like appease that the industry, you know, I'm glad that I never, uh, was, I, I never had the, uh, I was never pushed in that way. It's, it's, uh, 
it's a very, very tricky business to navigate, but if you're not focusing too hard on the business, it's, it's very fun and rewarding too. Um, so it was a great, it was a really fun and great journey, um, with friends and made a lot of friends along the way. And, and in the end, like, that's sort of like what you kind of come away with is like, Oh, I've, I've built all these really great relationships over the years and, and met some really cool people and, and got a chance to hang out and, and, uh, and see places travel, like traveling around the world was not something that I ever expected I would be able to do, um, as part of like a career either. And just that in itself was just so thrilling and exciting to me. So yeah, I, I don't know if I'd give, if I'd really actually even have any advice for like a 16 year old self other than like, you know, hold on tight, you know, buckle up. It's a, it's a fun ride. Yeah. That was a taste of the song When the Storm Has Passed off the upcoming Great Lake Swimmers album called Uncertain Country. And earlier in the show, uh, we heard a 16-year-old Tony Decker and his band Lock 8 doing the song Rocking Chair. And in the show notes, we're going to put uh, the details for all of that stuff, including live dates, a whole bunch of touring coming up for Great Lake Swimmers. In addition to the album that we mentioned called Tony Decker Sings 10 Years of Junior, which if you've never heard it, I recommend checking that out. And a final thank you to you, Tony, for sharing your stories today. I feel like we've been working together for almost 20 years through everything Zunia related. So thanks for all that support and best of luck with the new record. And I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. Cheers. like this podcast be sure to subscribe like and tell all your best music loving friends about it today's episode was brought to you by zunior.com and me lemonade dave i've done a lot of things in music over the years but these days i mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in prince edward county i'm gonna crack a cold one right now but if you're ever in pec be sure to ask for it by name and tell him dave sent you this is the story of a man named dave he lives in the country and makes lemonade don't call him crazy the lemons go hazy. He's cool when he brews. His sparkles make you move. Life gives you lemons, so you do what Dave does. You share it with your mom and share it with your cuz. You go pop a bottle, you can hit it for.